my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Mufi's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and files and files of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for <laughs> is in duty days. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage in the mountain ridge with the kayaks, you know, <laughs> Just go to podcasts.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. You'll laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. <laughs> tired of swimming through
Good morning, everybody. And on that note, that note from If I Had a Hammer, Pete Seeger's song sung there by none other than Trini Lopez, If I Had a Hammer. Or as the great slugger Hank Aaron said, we lost Hank Aaron this week, I had a hammer. And he went on to write about his career in the big leagues, including all the racism that he uh, encountered when he was going to break Babe Ruth's record. Babe Ruth, one of the big heroes of uh, my dad's generation of white America. So that was If I Had a Hammer. And uh, Albert Shuffle, something I haven't played on this show for a long time. Really no reason to play it except that I really like it. Mike Bloomfield showing off his uh, virtuoso style on the blues guitar. with Albert Shuffle, and then before that, back in the USA, of course, with Linda Ronstadt singing the Chuck Berry classic. Anything you want, we got it right here in the USA, and that ain't all. So we're going to take up where we left off with the history of union making in Hawaii. By the way, this is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. And if you look around and you see uh, investments, I was talking this week about uh, to people about investments, how a regular working person, even middle-class person, has to provide for their retirement by investing that is, by exploiting someone else. That interest rate that you get when your money is quote-unquote growing is in reality the labor of someone else. So if you invest in a company and it makes a lot of money for you, that money belongs to the people who produced it. Instead, it's paid out to investors like you and me. Anyone who's got a pension uh, pension account. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table at the negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. People sit down every day and decide what's going to happen with your life, how your day will be. In many cases, how you feel at the end of your day. So get a seat. People say they don't need a union. Of course they need a union. Of course you need a voice that's dedicated to you. The boss's aim is to get as much work from you as he can or she can and paying the least for it. 
That's just simple capitalism. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Let somebody else into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's just a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. Where the labor meets the road. Well, we have two uh, unfortunate anniversaries this week. One, of course, is the year ago murder of George Floyd in full view of the entire world. In full view. Given modern social messaging, everybody's got a camera in front of the whole world. Cops in Minneapolis, Minnesota held this man down and choked him to death right in front of all of us. What are we going to do about it? Well, a year has passed, and the uh, patrolman was dismissed, coming back on trial to see what he'll do to pay for what he did. And the cops who surrounded him and helped him and supported him, and all the people in this country for whom that's just a simple act of law enforcement. No, it isn't. It's murder. It's murder of black men specifically. And it's gone on forever. The other anniversary is the uh, Tulsa riot, 1921. We'll get into that with a little uh, documentary about the Black Wall Street, a place called Greenville, which was a uh, suburb of Tulsa. And every time I Listen to uh, Eric Clapton and Cheryl Crow sing Tulsa Time. I can't listen because I have to think of what happened there just a hundred years ago. We'll continue with our history of uh, labor organizing in the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, a story in itself of how a union was able to get people from all different ethnicities in the island to organize and to work together. Union work at its best. Roy Brown. There are two guys named Roy Brown that I want to play uh, some music. One is a Puerto Ricanio, famous for his album Yo Protesto, I Protest. The other is a rhythm and blues singer, famous for his song, Good Rockin' Tonight. We'll hear both of those. Radio Labor, our weekly world labor report, and uh, labor history in two, three or four of those, to get us up to date with our context as labor people were working in a context, a context that often people don't are not aware of because 
There is no labor education to speak of in this country. And finally, Sukiyaki, the story of a song, the story behind the international hit Sukiyaki, written in 1951, with a whole story. And then um, Judy Berry. I've been talking about Judy Berry now for several weeks. Finally get to talk about Judy Berry, a labor organizer slash environmentalist who understood like uh, Chico Mendes in Brazil, the nexus between the labor movement and the environmental movement, which uh, many people see as a contradiction, that the environmental movement wants to take away jobs. People are doing really well. Why should they give up their job? Well, why shouldn't they? This is the uh, stage that we perform on as people, this earth. What are we going to do? What kind of jobs are we going to do when it's gone? And it's not livable anymore for most people. And of course, labor has its side. People have to keep supporting their families. One thing that we've discovered in this long pandemic we're still going through, it's not over, that we're still going through is that we go to work to make money for other people. And if we're not going to work on making money for other people, the whole system will crash. And the problem with that is that it's a system based on a fundamental act of wage slavery. I have a feature here today uh, about bosses acting like it's all over. This one is from Portside. Bosses are acting like the pandemic never happened. Now with vaccinations on the rise and summer approaching, a lot of employers are going back to business as usual. Workers have leverage at this moment. For more than a year, the COVID-19 pandemic changed how America worked. Grocery store cashiers, line cooks, janitors, and millions of others, about a third of the American workforce, saw their jobs become dangerous overnight as they were asked to keep coming to work in person in spite of the viral threat. Meanwhile, millions more transitioned from going to an office to working in their homes. Percentage of workers logging on remotely rose from 17% to 44%. And you can include in those numbers workers like young children who no longer had an office, <laughs> a classroom to go to. Workers in both groups had to figure out how to take care of their kids 
when schools and daycares across the country closed their doors. Among employers and the culture at large, there was at least some minimal acknowledgement that work had become harder than anyone had bargained for. Some bosses, especially in white-collar industries, became more understanding of child care responsibilities, granting workers the flexibility to do their work outside a traditional nine-to-five, even if they didn't necessarily reduce the overall workload. Other companies began offering hazard pay and other bonuses. It wasn't enough for many workers were going through, but it was something. Now restaurant and other service employees, employers are saying they can't find workers and some are blaming expanded unemployment benefits. There it is right there. There it is right there when you see public officials, governors, standing up and saying that they're not going to send benefits to workers because it keeps them from working. <laughs> if your kid has enough food to eat, that's a problem, huh? Because you're supposed to be going to work. Meanwhile, some large employers are ready to get rid of the flexibility of the pandemic in order to bring all their employees back to the office. The commute, you know, yes, people don't like commuting, but so what? J.P. Morgan Chase Chief Executive Jamie Dimon said at a May conference. Last year has been a harrowing one for many American workers, even before the COVID hit. Millions of workers had been dealing with years of stagnant wages and absent or inadequate benefits. As CEOs and shareholders got rich, they're the shareholders, those people who invest and live off other people's labor. The ratio of CEO to worker compensation was 320 to one in 2019. That's where the money's going, y'all. That's why there's not enough money. In 1965, that number was 21 to one. The squeeze that workers have felt for many years, really since the 1970s, has only amplified during the pandemic. Some large companies like Amazon, Walmart, and Target did begin offering hazard pay for frontline workers last spring. Kroger, the parent company of Food for Less, gave employees a $2 per hour hero bonus. That bonus expired last May with COVID-19 cases still rising in many areas. And when Los Angeles mandated an extra $5 per hour in hazard pay for many grocery workers earlier this year, Kroger shut down three stores in the area. It 
becomes impossible to operate in these three stores. In other words, we can't pay our CEOs and our board. We can't pay all our investors. So we have to close and lo workers lose their jobs. 38 of the largest 300 largest companies in America announced some form of hazard bonus last spring, according to the watchdog group Just Capital, but by August, half these policies had expired. Now Food for Less Workers, represented by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, are negotiating a new contract. Management is offering a wage increase of just 50 cents an hour to one-third of its workers and no increase to the rest. Kroger's offer is a win for food for less than 7,000 associates, a competitive wage increase, and a strong healthy and helping benefits package. Brian Kaltenbach, President of Food for Less said in a press release, released in response to Vox's request for comment. Read it. Portside, Portside Labor. And the tagline is bosses are acting like the pandemic never happened. Okay, I think it's about a time for our World News Report on radio labor. Listen up and realize how we're all in this same boat. Workers here, workers there, workers all around the world. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, May 28th, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, labor unions celebrate Africa Day, the labor movement's climate action plans, the Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. May 25th is Af Africa Day. It is the annual commemoration of the founding of the Organization of African Unity in 1963. It is a day to remember the achievements of Africans and consider the challenges they face. To find out about the particular challenges of labor unions on the continent, I talked to Kwasi Adu Amankwa. Mr. Adu Amankwa is the General Secretary of the African Regional Organization of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the body which represents national trade union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress at the world level. ITUC Africa represents 17 million members of 100 trade union centers in 51 African countries. I asked Mr. Adu Amankwa first about how labor unions in Africa have been coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, as you know, the COVID-19 pandemic 
took everybody by surprise, including workers in Africa. And apart from some initial disorientation that was brought on by the pandemic, trade unions quickly adjusted and began to address a range of issues in a variety of ways. Principal among the concerns of trade unions was the question of protection of jobs, the question of protection of incomes, especially for those who were threatened with job losses, the concern for sick leave for workers who were sick, and then also for personal protective equipment for those who were in the front line, especially in the early days. And all these unions try to do through the mechanism of social dialogue, both at the workplace and at national level. And through social dialogue also, a number of unions try to speak out for those in the informal economy who are not necessarily unionized. And then above all, in the midst of the pandemic, we also try to put on the agenda the question of occupational health and safety as a workplace concern for unions. ITUC Africa has supported calls by the ITUC for a new social contract for recovery and resilience. What is the contract and what would it do? Well, even before the pandemic, many trade unions around the continent were faced with threats to what we may call the social contract between those who rule and the government. What the pandemic did was to expose the fragility of the existing social contracts, and to bring out more clearly the vulnerability of African workers. So we have supported the new social contract called by the ITUC as a means of trying to renew hope for African workers and to try to combat what we consider the threats to democracy in Africa, which were existent because we were not seeing the benefits or the dividends of democracy which we have been experiencing in the last few decades. So for us, the new social contract has five main pillars, which include the concern for employment, for jobs, jobs, jobs. And in this connection, we are very interested in climate-friendly jobs. The question of rights is to organize and collective bargaining, and also to be able to negotiate for minimum living wages that workers can survive. Then also, especially as brought up by the pandemic very clearly, to pay attention to social protection, not only as something which is important for our societies, but also as an investment. Because when you invest in social protection, it also means that people then have an income and can become capable economic agents. And then there is a question of equality. To tackle the inequalities in the world of work and in society at large, and also to make a case for inclusion, a social contract which allows that different segments of the population are catered for and are brought into mainstream social policy. So these are the key elements of the new social contract that we have been very concerned about. Here with a report about the international labor movement's plans for developing green, sustainable economies is C. Marie Ainsborough. The international labor movement is demanding that governments implement just transitions from fossil fuel-based industries, such as oil and coal, to green sustainable economies. 
The global campaign by Labour is being led by the International Trade Union Confederation. Sharon Burrow is the General Secretary of the ITUC. She spoke about climate change and the need for just transition to UN news. Investors are not investing in coal. Workers know that. What they want is, indeed, the simple but uh, significant just transition measures that actually give them certainty. When will the jobs, whether it's in coal mining or coal-fired power stations, come to an end? What is the transition arrangement? So you need secure pensions. Sometimes you need a bridge to pensions if workers are just shy of their pension and make the choice to actually retire early. You need the guarantees that there will be income support, reskilling support and redeployment support for jobs either in other areas of an industry, so renewable energy versus coal-fired power stations, for example, often different skills and understanding, sometimes uh, quite compatible, but depending on the technology, or separately, other areas of the economy. So it's not that there aren't jobs. The economic uh, statistics show you that if you invest in climate, in climate action generally, you create jobs. The real question is, can we make sure that those jobs are available for workers who've been displaced? Or if they're in the north of a country and you're in the south of a country, what do you do to create investment in those communities that will offer jobs that are available for redeployment? These are the things that you have to tie down in an agreement so workers have certainty around their future. We've had many transitions. You can pick an area in the manufacturing sector or other sectors of the industry. They haven't always been just. We've seen whole communities decimated with shifting technologies, shifting industry focus. And what we need to do this time is make sure that the resistance to actually moving rapidly to stabilise the planet is actually reduced because workers and their families can see that they have hope, that their communities will have investment, that they'll maintain jobs in the community and that themselves and their children will be able to see a future, whether it's in those jobs or in other jobs in the same industry or in other industries. For more information about Labour's plan for green sustainable economies, visit ituc-csi.org. This is Seymour Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week our top story section included links to coverage of the increase in child labour in many parts of the world and why experts are attributing it to the pandemic. The arrest of a Kenyan security guard in Qatar after he blogged about living and working conditions for migrant workers there. The first ever virtual meeting of the International Labour Conference and the release of a report which ranked countries in order of the level of support offered to workers who have been affected by the pandemic. One story that has had a long, perhaps too long life on our news pages is the rising level of violence experienced by retail workers around the world. A recent UK report is just the latest evidence of a problem that predates the pandemic, but which has very definitely been made worse by the impact of COVID-19. 
There are wider societal issues contributing to the problem, of course, but the transformation of retail over the past decade is a major contributor. Staffing levels have been drastically reduced. Workers are increasingly part-time and precariously employed and less knowledgeable about the products and services they sell. The British report details how the physical distancing and other restrictions required by the pandemic have made the problem much worse. Over the past year, we have seen similar stories from dozens of countries, and the problem does appear to be getting worse, not better, as public health restrictions continue in much of the world. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found stories about the ways in which women mine workers around the globe are combating gender discrimination at work. A Peruvian trade union activist targeted by her employer after documenting the unsanitary working conditions that her 5,000 co-workers suffer with and the organizing efforts of Hong Kong domestic workers, most of them women and many of them migrants, in their struggles against discrimination. Our health and safety newswire highlighted the growing frustration and anxiety experienced by Canadian public transport operators as their employers come down hard on them if they don't follow pandemic protocols, while at the same time allowing passengers to ride without masks. We also had news of an airport accident in Australia that has been attributed to the effects of the contracting out of airline services. The donation of oxygen concentrators to Indian seafarers by the International Transport Workers Federation and pleas from Argentinian gravediggers for a vaccine as the death toll amongst their co-workers rises sharply. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity with Jeanne Erdal, a Canadian unionist who's been in a Turkish prison since he visited that country last September. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. Now here are music stars from all across Africa with Let's Stand Together.
Let's Stand Together was produced by the Poverty Reduction Organization One and the Nelson Mandela Foundation. And that's it, International Labor News Weekend News. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
Okay, that was uh, Sukiyaki, and of course there's a story that goes with that song. That somehow hooks up to the labor movement. Okay, here we go. The song was recorded in 1961 by a Japanese singer named Kiyu Sakamoto. It was written by Rokosuke El and composer Hachidai Nakamura. Lyrics tell the story of a man who looks up and whistles while he is walking so that his tears will not fall, with the verses describing his memories and feelings. A wrote the lyrics while walking home from a Japanese student protest against the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security between the United States and Japan, expressing his frustration and dejection at the failed efforts. However, the lyrics were purposely generic so that they might refer to any lost love. <clears throat> now, what is that treaty that made him feel so bad? The Treaty of Mutual Cooperation. And when you sign a, pre a treaty with the United States government about mutual cooperation, you know you better keep your hand on your, wa your wallet. The treaty was first signed in 1951, at the San Francisco Presidio after the signing of the Treaty of San Francisco. In other words, um, it permitted the U.S. to maintain peace in East Asia and even exert its power on Japanese domestic quarrels. These were defeated, but the other version of the treaty allowed the U.S. to monopolize Japanese foreign affairs. The amended treaty included articles delineating mutual defense obligations and requiring the U.S. to inform Japan. At any rate, uh, Japanese protesters were very angry about it. Because it, uh, in effect, handed over a Japanese foreign policy to the United States. It became the subject of a bitter debate over Japanese-American relations <coughs> and the occasion for violence in all-out efforts by leftists to prevent its passage. And, of course, one of those leftists was creator of that song, Tsukiyaki, somehow was named after a Japanese hot dish. Had nothing to do with uh, the song. It was named Tsukiyaki evidently because it, would, it was something that American audiences would relate to. Tsukiyaki. Massive demonstrations and rioting by students and trade unions followed. 
after the treaty was approved on May 20th. Japanese Socialist Party deputies boycotted the lower house session, tried to prevent the Liberal Democratic Party deputies from entering the chamber and were forcibly removed by the police. Scheduled visit by U.S. President Eisenhower was <clears throat> rescheduled and precipitated the resignation of Japanese Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi, but not before the treaty had passed by default. Opposition was largely based on the argument that Article 6 of the treaty threatened the sovereign power of Japan. It's, as further explained below, it contains a status of forces agreement that allows the U.S. to use military forces and facilities deployed in Japan for combat other than for the defense of Japan. So, oh, every song has a story. <laughs> okay, so we do have the sad occasion, 100th anniversary of the so-called Tulsa riots. And basically the white the white uh, population of Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921 went crazy, murdered 300 people, mostly black destroyed the Greenville area, which was the black neighborhood called Black Wall Street. 35 blocks of 1,200 homes, businesses, churches, and schools were deployed, destroyed. And before whites destroyed it, they looted, according to a recent 60 Minutes episode, when black hospital burned, White hospitals refused to take Greenwood's wounded. Okay. Going back to T-Town. Purchased a small piece of land in the northeast section of Tulsa. They called it Greenwood. As segregation practices had grown in white Tulsa, so had the black businesses in Greenwood. I started the beauty shop dressing hair in 1915 in the home. We had money, but we were not able to go and purchase things, so it helped us to go into business for our own selves. And then that's when the black people began to build. So in front of Ramsey's drugstore was a cab stand called the Your Cab Company. And there were several uh, cabs, and they were all owned by blacks. And some of the owners were bought uh, four or five new cabs every year. 
He ran on bus transportation. The city lines, the city bus lines today were started by a black man. And he sold the thing to the city with the understanding that they would have black drivers. Before there were city buses, there were jitneys that uh, black people owned. And um, uh, the ambulance really intoned as it went through Greatwood Street. We had two or three ambulances, yes. Ambulances uh, which were operated by funeral homes. And there were no fees attached to the ambulance service. Of course, I su suppose the undertakers who operated the ambulances thought that the patient might die and they'd get remunerated through that way. To a barbecue place, and you'd hear the blues, you'd hear the jazz, and you'd hear live performance. Um, Diana Washington and uh, Roy Milton and the Globetrotters would come strolling down the street. Earl Bostic was from here. We had Clarence Love was from here. A lot of musicians that went all over the United States. Clarence Love had an all-girls band that traveled all across the country. some of the best barbecue that uh, that you could ever want to taste. I can remember though one place though that um, that I guess to 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 get that white business, he had a side for black folks and side for uh, white folks. And I can remember thinking I didn't think his barbecue was that great because I hated the idea that uh, he had to he had to do this. You know he had a he had a market that he didn't have to do that. Okay, that was uh, <clears throat> one uh, one version of the uh, Tulsa riots. Um, we haven't really gotten into what happened there, but let's take a look. It was called a riot, and it was... Tulsa riots. Um, basically, the whole town was burned down. And uh, let's see if we can get a good video. This is one of the most despicable. happened here and for decades people didn't talk about it I was an adult before I ever heard about it it was something that was was, was hidden this entire historic community was obliterated bodies dumped in rivers bodies dumped in mass graves it was an absolute massacre this story isn't one you'll find in most history books and almost a hundred years later the facts of what exactly happened that day are still unraveling. 
So we're driving in what's known as Black Wall Street. It's where one of the nation's worst episodes of racial violence took place. In 1921, a neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called the Greenwood District, was a bustling community of Black-owned businesses. Tulsa locals know that period of Greenwood's history as a kind of golden age. You can imagine just a, um, like an old-time downtown. Things like um, movie theaters, pharmacies, hair salons, and so forth. They called it Black Wall Street. It was a mecca. It was a huge success. But Black Wall Street was also an anomaly. It thrived at a time when the KKK was incredibly active in Oklahoma, and the nation had just been through the Red Summer of 1919, when white mobs murdered black people in dozens of incidents across the U.S. There needed to be a sort of match or an igniter tossed on these embers, and that event was, that trigger event, was an incident that involved two teenagers, Dick Rowland, 19-year-old, Black boy who signed shoes downtown. Sarah Page, 17-year-old white girl who ran an elevator in a downtown building called the Drexel Building. He went to the building, boarded the elevator. Something happened and Sarah Page began to scream. They both ran out of the elevator. Now, we don't know exactly what happened in this elevator, but a day later, Roland was arrested and taken to the courthouse. The local newspaper ran an article claiming Roland had assaulted Page. Even though Page refused to press charges, the article was essentially a call to action for whites. A large white mob began to gather on the lawn of the courthouse. Dick Rowland was in jail on the top floor. A number of black men, several dozen, marched down to the courthouse to protect him, some of them armed. There was a struggle between one of the black men and the small group and one of the white men in the larger group, and things sort of went south from, from that point. Hundreds of white people descended upon Black Wall Street, armed. Black residents withdrew behind the railroad tracks that marked off the Greenwood District. Some of them were armed and fought back, but they were outnumbered by the white mob, which shot their way through. The white mob murdered. They looted, and they set fire to Black Wall Street. This was the strategy, if you will, of how to deal with these communities, with these successful black communities. The effects were uh, disastrous. The Secretary of State's office just released numbers that make it look like... For two days, the Greenwood District burned, martial law was declared, and the National Guard was brought in. By the time the massacre ended, Greenwood was in ruins. More than 1,200 homes were destroyed and 35 blocks burned. The exact number of casualties is harder to pin down. Some initially only reported that white people died. Others reported somewhere between 30 and 100 mostly black casualties. But estimates now put that number closer to 300. As for those that survived, Thousands of them lived in tent cities in the months that followed, and were left to pick up the pieces of rubble they once called home. After the massacre, the cover-up started. Records went missing from city files, including the very article that started it all. 
It makes photos from this time all the more important as part of the historical record, but back in 1921, these images served a very different purpose. So photo postcards like these were pretty widely distributed after the massacre. At the time, they were a part of white supremacist culture and kept as souvenirs of racially charged crimes. Now, they're preserved to make sure this part of Tulsa's history isn't forgotten, and they paint a clear picture of how much destruction there was that day. On the postcards, it's called the Tulsa Race Riot, a name that itself sort of erases what really happened. By calling it a riot, it's a way of, of trying to rewrite the history, uh, assuming that there were both sides at fault, and that was not the case. I call it a massacre. Uh, and I call it that because that's what it was. Greenwood eventually rebuilt, but nearly a century later, there's a part of this story that still haunts the city. No one actually knows where the victims' bodies are. We got to find our people. We got to put them at rest. You know, if not, we continue to be haunted by what was done so many years ago. Kevin Ross, a local writer, is one of many in Tulsa descended from people who lost everything in the massacre. So in this cemetery, there are only two official victims of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Right. How many victims do you think there are? After all these years, I think 300 is putting it mild. In 1997, the city finally put together a commission to study the massacre and help piece together what happened in 1921. They compiled records and eyewitness accounts. The bullets were just raining down over us. They set our house on fire and went right straight to the curtains and set the curtains on fire. These accounts are especially important now because none of these survivors are alive anymore and they also provided new information. Some mentioned trucks, like this one, loaded with victims of the riot. One riot witness in particular came forth testifying that he saw bodies being dumped in Oaklawn Cemetery. This is it. This is the area. Using the survivor accounts, records, and eventually radar, the city was able to pinpoint three locations with anomalies in the soil. Only one step was left, to excavate. But it was something the city, at the time, wasn't up for doing. For many Tulsans, it was a part of history best forgotten and not worth investigating. In some ways, today, that sentiment remains. Probably waste of money. It's over, it's done with. But there are clear signs of a city that's ready to come to terms with the dark chapter in its history. Honestly, that's a lot of missing people, people that probably had families. We owe it to the people who, whose blood has actually fertilized the grounds of this place. There was a tremendous amount of racism. Injustice plus time does not equal justice. Today, a new mayor is reopening the investigation. I think a pretty basic compact that a city makes with its citizens is if somebody murders you, we will do everything we can to find out what happened to you and give your family closure. And whether that, whether you were murdered yesterday or you were murdered 98 years ago. The city will be looking into the three areas that the commission noted. 
That process of finding out what lies beneath Tulsa and DNA matching any remains with descendants could take years. The investigation is just one part of a bigger historical reckoning, but the reality is it can't undo the crimes or the cover-up of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. This, this story is the greatest conspiracy of silence that I've ever seen in history. Thanks for watching. If you haven't already heard, we've launched a paid membership program called The Video Lab. For a monthly fee, subscribers get access to tons of bonus material. Becoming a member is the best way to support our work, so head on over to Well, that's the basic story of uh, what happened in Tulsa in 1921. I can remember a, a movie called Tulsa with Susan Hayward and uh, Pedro Almendares uh, about the oil industry and, and uh, Cher Cherokee Lansing, the Native Americans. Of course, not a mention of this that had happened at the time. The movie was probably about 1940, and uh, just a few years, just 20 years later. Anyway, Tulsa Remember and Rise event canceled days before Centennial of Race Massacre after dispute over payment to survivors. And this question of uh, reparations uh, for victims of racism, for uh, people who are slaves in general, their families. So the whole thing is as new as yesterday. Cornerstone event of the Tulsa Race Massacre commemoration in Oklahoma was abruptly canceled because lawyers representing survivors and descendants demanded a higher fee for their participation in the event that had been originally agreed upon. Legal representatives of the three living survivors approached the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission about including them in the Remember and Rise occasion in return for $100,000 each and a $2 million seed gift to a reparations coalition fund. State Senator Kevin Matthews, chairman of the commission, said in a Friday press conference that parties agreed to these terms. He said at the last minute, the lawyers representing the survivors moved to change the agreement, requesting $1 million each and $50 million for the fund, said Matthews, who did not take questions. We could not respond to these demands. 
Limber and Rise was touted as a headline, headlining occasion featuring the Grammy Award winner John Legend and influential Georgia Democrat Stacey Abrams to mark the 100th anniversary of the destruction of the Black Wall Street. Due to un unexpected circumstances with entertainers and speakers, the Centennial Commission is unable to fulfill our high expectations. So, the lawyers want more money. The people want more money. Anyway, the whole thing is just as new as yesterday, so I guess they'll have to uh, negotiate that up. Here's one that says the legacy of bit too long. Okay, so this whole question now of reparations in a minute our uh, student assistants are going to student correspondents are going to uh, call up. And we're going to discuss this question of reparations. Uh, what do you think? Should the descendants of slaves be paid reparations for all the work that they did? Um, Malcolm X once remarked that white America owed American Afri um, black people for 450 years of free labor. 450 years of free labor. Who said Malcolm X wasn't <laughs> wasn't turning socialist? Well, of course he wasn't turning socialist. He was always a black nationalist. But at that point he equated that labor, those hundreds of years of labor to the oppression of the black experience in the United States. All right, let's see if we can play some music here. We had Dwight Yoakam. I don't know if I... Dwight Yoakam playing the Sloop John B. That was a nice one. Um... Juan Gabriel, no me vuelvo a enamorar. I'll never fall in love. I'll never fall in love. Totalmente para qué Si la primera vez que entregué mi corazón Me equivoqué No me vuelvo a enamorar 
me vuelvo a enamorar totalmente para que
see a miner and a film star together, the husky one's the miner. Well, usually. And before he went away, of course, they asked him to sing. I saw Joey last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I Standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never cure went on to organize, went on to organize. I dreamed I saw Joe last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Okay, there was uh, <clears throat> Paul Robeson singing uh, the Labor Movement Anthem. Joe Hill, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night alive as you and me. And uh, hello. Wait, let me turn you up here. Okay. Hello? Hmm, you're coming in really, really faint. Um, what's going on? Can you hear me now? Wait a minute, let's try it. Mike, how about that? Well, I can't hear you. Um, anyway, uh, let's get on with it. Um, I just had a feature on my show. Oh, by the way, this is Vita Castaneda Morgan and <coughs> Yemen Kabaz, our uh, correspondents from uh, UC Davis, our campus correspondence. It's very useful for all of us to understand what students are thinking. Students are going to be our leaders in the future. So Vita and Yemen, uh, I want to thank you for calling, for calling in. Okay, 
I think I got you better now. Can you say something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hello, good morning. Yeah, much better. I put you on, uh, on, I took you off mute. <laughs> good, good, good. Okay, that well, helps. thank you so much for calling in, and um, here's the story. Um, one of my features this week was the sad celebration, or celebration, the sad ad- anniversary of a race riot. That's what it's called in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, where the white people in Tulsa basically went crazy uh, over an assumed incident between a white girl and a black teenager and um, basically murdered 300 people or more. They're just saying it was more now and burned down the whole uh, black neighborhood called black Greenwood. Wall black Wall Street. Exactly. So the question that we're going to deal with, I guess, is uh, should there be reparation? Should there be money paid in this case there was a plan to pay some money to the victims, some of the living victims, uh, but it it didn't happen. There was a disagreement over how much money it was going to be. So the larger question is, should uh, the descendants of former slaves be paid reparations? In other words, money to repay them for the experience that their ancestors went through. Like, like Malcolm X said... Uh, the United States owes black America for 450 years of free labor. Yeah. Okay, I'm talking yeah. too much. You guys go ahead. What do you think? Right. Well, I mean, of course I think there should be some type of reparation or something. And But one thing that worries me is that in any case for anyone, it's like the lottery, you know? Like mm-hmm. if you end up winning the lottery, then you get all this money. And then it's like, just because you get the money doesn't mean you'll invest it or do what you need to do with it. So wouldn't it be better if they gave people land oh, that's... or something like tangible, real, you know, like aside from money, you know, get land and money, like split it up a bit, maybe. Okay. Because I... land is very valuable and then they could sell it if they want or they could keep it because it's like you're supposed to be getting part of the American dream. Part of the American dream is having land. But, I mean, they could also be sneaky and give them the worst land or some BS. So maybe money is best. Yeah, that's how Oklahoma started, you know. It was land they gave to the Native American tribes and then because nobody else wanted it. And then it was eventually taken back. Okay, what's your read on it, Yemen? Um, So just to clarify as of right now, is money all they're offering? Um, yeah, there was a, an offer of a hundred thousand dollars to each victim. Oh and then, no, I think that's pathetic. And two hundred two, two million dollars to the community, to the uh, I, I black think community. Money, the value of the dollar, maybe it's yeah. just appropriate that they're doing it right now since it's. Uh, 40% inflated. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> going to trickle in. Right. Sorry, there might be like an economic collapse too soon. So it's like, what are you going to do with all that money? Like, wipe your butt? Like, yeah, you, we need, you need something tangible, something real that we can, like, 
like they can get something out of, you know. I see. You know, we we printed forty percent of the dollars in circulation in the last year and a half. Okay. Whoa. So yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, whatever the Fed is telling you, whatever the the you know the administration is telling you, what's going to happen is the dollar is going to tank, lose its power in the next few years, yeah. regardless of how they're telling you it might not happen. It might not happen. Uh-huh. It might not happen. Is so you don't lose your sentiment. Yeah, and if they're giving people money, even now, like they're giving people money, it's just to save their own ass. Because if we don't have money because of the virus and because of everything. And the whole economy stops. And so uh, my my idea is they, they tackle these problems when when it's, when they start brewing, right? So it seems maybe more appropriate for them to tackle this issue of reparations right now when the value of the dollar is tanked. But in reality, they should be building back their Wall Street. We should be professional African-American statisticians to say what would a black Wall Street been today had we not messed with them. Uh-huh. And then you're probably going to have to end up giving them the keys to Wall Street. Because, um, and given the well, you know, give the keys to the natives and the Mexicans of the country, and give the land and, and Wall Street and, and everything back to African Americans and a little bit of both, and that's it. And then pack your bags and go back to Europe. <laughs> no, no, but go back. No, yeah, well, I'll go yeah. back to Europe. But uh, no, you're gonna have to. I mean, at the very least, yeah, we're you know, fifty percent of Wall Street. That's 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 my. Opinion. Yeah, that's my worry too. That it's like what at least fifty percent of Wall Street. On the, human suffering and the like millions of existences and lives that were humiliated people who put their whole life's work into becoming someone and then just in a day just because some people are angry now they have nothing they have to restart all over they were never then, put in the history yeah, books they're, they're not they never able got to, to convert. be famous they won't be able to converge which is like they can't converge to an economics you know a country that starts off poor can't converge to the GDP of a country that started off rich. It's, yeah. just not, it's not happening. You know what I mean? And so, like, that's, they took that away. So what does that mean? How did they give it back? They took all that. So you have to put, you know, I want to see Mexican, Native, Black people on the dollar. I don't want to see anybody, like, doesn't have to be there on the dollar bill anymore, you know? And you're going to have to give them their institutions and all that stuff. Like, it's complicated. But, yeah, you're going to have to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> It is complicated. America is trying to, uh, some people in America are trying to come to terms with the realities of how the nation was founded. And, and uh, yeah. anyway, there is some precedent. There is some precedent for it. In 1988, the U.S. government gave, uh, I think, $10,000 to each Japanese American person who had been imprisoned in World War II. That's wow. <laughs> Ten money. grand. <laughs> what, in the 80s? Like, like so, so speaking, like if you give someone, someone says, like, give me a million dollars today or give me $500 a month for the next 10 years, $500 a month for the next 10 years is a better bet. Yeah, probably. It, because, it, yeah. It bring, brings out, like, that's like, it's the science thing. It's, it's a research thing. It's like, that's actually better for someone than taking a million dollars today. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to make one more quick Okay. Um, in Mexico, AMLO, he like started doing stuff like that. I'm sure it's just for show. But like doing things like this towards the indigenous people in different areas and like sort of reparations and like recognizing genocides that occurred by the Mexican government. 
um, definitely in the 20th century and stuff like that. And then he, a few years back, he said that Spain should recognize what they did to Mexico. Like, just recognize that they colonized Mexico and there was a genocide there. And just recognize it. And the Spanish, whatever, said, no, they don't need to recognize it. There's no need to go over every... <laughs> that happened since then. There's no need to go over all this business. You right. know what I'm saying? So there are really a lot of things still that need to be even just recognized. Even just this year, um, Biden recognized the Armenian genocide. You know, like with... And the whole thing with Turkey and all that. So oh, yeah. there's a lot of things that just even need to be recognized. And I think it's a step in the right direction. Uh, you know, reparations, it's all a step in the right direction. But, you know, like Yemen said, the value of the dollar and everything. But, right. Yeah. Okay, well, um, I want to thank you both for your responses. Yemen, you got any Bitcoin news for us? So what's happening right now with the, with the market is that it's going sideways. Uh, they're consolidating. It reached a high of 60,000 after after being at 3.5 plus uh, in 2020. It's at 3.5K. It went to 63K, and it's consolidating around 35K right now. Institutions are starting to buy up. They don't want to buy at 60K. Who wants to buy at 60K? Who's, who's, uh, who's into finance, right? So you're buying at a discount right now. Uh, the market sentiment is retail people like us, you and me, we are being told to be afraid of it while they buy up so that they can find <laughs> a percent discount. So you can expect maybe a, a few weeks to uh, maybe up to six months of this uh, of this consolidation. Um, you can never really predict with Bitcoin, but uh, it is at a discount and it may be at a more of a discount. Um, not financial advice, never financial advice. Buy at your own risk. Um, but yeah, that, that's the sentiment. So we're going to move sideways for a few weeks to a few months, um, and we don't know whether this can shift in the, the next two weeks or six months. But the move is, and we're still in a we're in a market downtrend, but in a mini market on the on the mini on the macro, we're in an uptrend. We're still not at highs before we go back into our four year low. Uh -huh. That's the update. Also, I want to tell everybody follow Bill on YouTube. However, you can find this link. Hopefully, he'll share it on his Facebook. <laughs> and all the social media links, but yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you. When we start our campus correspondence live, after right. you start yours. Okay, campus correspondence live. I like it. We'll have a collab. Yeah. <laughs> Originated from Labor and Love. Collaboration. <laughs> Labor and yeah. Love live. Okay. Um, Okay, you guys, thanks again, and uh, hope you have a good day. Uh, don't study too hard, but study some. Haven't studied yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Thanks for calling. Love you. Love you, too. Have a nice day. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, so that was uh, Rita in Yemen calling us from, from uh, Cal Davis and with their views on the reparations. Um, reparations, for whom, how, when? I mean, it's so easy for, uh, for executives to figure out how to spend money and pass money out to each other.
but when they have to think about passing money out to victims of their policies and their foreign policies, it's a whole different thing. Well, that's about it for today. I'm going to hand you over to the tender mercies of Scott O. Walker and his uh, Flat Black Plastic show. This is Labor and Love, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Bye, everybody. See you next week, or hear you next week. And we'll go out with a Japanese protest song. A.K.A. Sukiyaki. Have a good week. Have good work. Wherever you go, whatever you do, honor labor.
over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. continuing to hurt. I tried everything. I massaged her legs, eyes, feet. At 3 a.m. she looked at me and she said, Mommy, please help me. So I did. I put her in the car and I took her to the Children's Hospital. I took her straight back and the doctor did some tests. The ER doctor, he came in, he talked to me and he said, uh, her x-ray looks great. Her blood work looks normal. However, I don't want you to leave yet. He said, there's two more tests that I'm waiting on that aren't back. And um, at 8.30, a new doctor comes in. And that's when he told us all the tests were highly suspicious for leukemia. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Got mutiny, mutiny radio, 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 my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Let's Spiegelman. We're hosts of... Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and watch the movie at the same time. Yeah.
L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%, 5% Yeah, Right. I'm time. so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, uh, 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 let's watch full-length movies. Oh, wait, let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See, uh, see you next month. I was just leaving the theater. Convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with a white interior. I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. Around in and on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, noon to two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I told you. Can I see? Colonel Blake, Henry, yeah, Charlie here, yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m.
I may not always